I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Thursday, January 27th, 2022, the 372nd day of dystopia. Getting right into it. We talk a lot about how the narrative is breaking down. Obviously, it is the premise for the show as we move into and through 2022. If you don't believe that the narrative is breaking down, then explain why Anderson Cooper is short-circuiting. He was also pretending that his answer is a scientific answer to, to that question, but, I mean, his final, you know, the way he phrased the final, the answer that we just played there, he chose to focus on the most negative aspects, which is that, you know, in his, I'm paraphrasing him, that long-term, uh, the vaccines did not show over time, over a certain period of time, uh, effectiveness, which is certainly true over a long enough period of time. The vaccines are not as effective. Um, but phrasing it that way is a very strange way to phrase it when, in fact, the most direct answer is the vaccines are very effective uh, and the booster shows great efficacy as well, as opposed to, well, just over an undis undisclosed long period of time, they're not. So that is Anderson Cooper reacting to the confirmation hearing for Florida's Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo. And his hearing happened yesterday. Since then, Democrats have been freaking out that he could possibly not be saying the things that Anthony Fauci says about coronavirus and the vaccines. They're mad that he won't mindlessly repeat that the vaccines are very safe and effective. But Anderson Cooper's response there is unbelievable. He basically is accusing the man of lying or not following the science or not knowing the science or having ulterior motives, as many of the Democrats in Florida accused him of having. But he says, well, OK, what he what he says was actually true. The effectiveness of the vaccines wanes over time, but he wasn't saying it for the right reasons, right? He shouldn't have been focused on the fact that the effectiveness goes away and he shouldn't be focused on the fact that they're not particularly safe for something that is not particularly effective. He should be saying all of the right things and ignoring the fact that the vaccines aren't safe or effective. That's what he should be doing. And then we can all acknowledge that the data says the vaccines are not safe or effective, but we're not supposed to say that. We're supposed to say people need to get vaccinated. 
no matter what. Get vaccinated once, get vaccinated twice, get vaccinated three times, get vaccinated as many times as we tell you to get vaccinated, even though it's not a vaccine. So yeah, Ladapo's right. But he's not right in the right way or for the right reasons. He shouldn't be saying those things. Anderson Cooper says, phrasing it that way, talking about how the vaccine effectiveness wanes over time, not that it's particularly effective in the first place, but that's a weird way of phrasing it. The most direct way to phrase it is to say that the vaccines are very effective. What does direct mean in that case? He's essentially saying that if you tell people the truth, they will come to conclusions that we don't want them to come to. So it's better to just tell them the conclusion we want them to come to and then tell them that they're bad people if they want to know how we reached the conclusion. Things are getting real bad over at CNN, and not just because they found out that two of their top stars had producers who were pedophiles. It's actually worse than that. Jim Acosta even debuted a new show this week competing against Fox News' Jesse Waters in his new time slot, and Acosta got like 100,000 viewers on CNN, 100,000 viewers. I don't have advertising or a network or this large public persona, but even I have a few thousand unique listeners every week. Jim Acosta was in the White House press room. He's on CNN every single day and no one wants to watch him because CNN is just a joke now. That is just embarrassing. Embarrassing. So I want to spend a little time on COVID and the vaccines and whatnot today in the first half of the show, at least. There's some interesting news today coming out of Sweden. This is from Reuters. Sweden has decided against recommending COVID vaccines for kids aged 5 to 11, the health agency said on Thursday, arguing that the benefits did not outweigh the risks. With the knowledge we have today, with a low risk for serious disease for kids, we don't see any clear benefit with vaccinating them, health agency official Britta Bjorkholm told a news conference. She added that the decision could be revisited if the research changed or if a new variant changed the pandemic. Kids in high-risk groups can already get the vaccine. Sweden registered more than 40,000 new cases on January 26th, one of the highest daily numbers during the pandemic, despite limited testing. Wait a second, Reuters. Are you saying that more testing finds more cases? So if you wanted to increase the number of cases for some reason, I don't know why anybody would want to do that. They're just trying to get an accurate picture of disease prevalence in society, right? But you're saying that if you increase testing, then you would increase the number of cases. That's why you're saying despite limited testing, they're not testing enough and they still have this huge number. Imagine if they were testing enough. That's how scary Omicron is in Sweden. Well, we were told that we were conspiracy theorists and that Donald Trump was a conspiracy theorist when he said simply, the more you test, the more cases you find. Back in 2020. 
And we were told that because there were so many cases, we were measuring everything on cases. Oh, my God. Cases. No, not cases. We would get more cases and then we would have to shut down more things the more we tested. And that was Donald Trump's point. Hey, the only reason you're able to scare the entire country with all of these cases is because you keep testing for them with faulty tests and you keep paying medical facilities every time they record a case and you have these upstart testing companies doing free covid tests in the parking lot outside the grocery store in a little tent with a sign and they're making millions of dollars to record more cases That's where the problem comes from. And that was a salient point back then, and it's a salient point now. Even Reuters apparently has recognized it. While the fourth wave has seen daily infection records shattered, the healthcare is not under the same strain as during previous waves. Well, what would that tell you? How come instead of calling this a fourth wave, you call it the cold, which it essentially is? And I know some people have more serious reactions than others, mostly the vaccinated. But it is essentially for most people, nothing more than a common seasonal cold. But Reuters doesn't want to call it simply Omicron. They would rather pretend that this is a fourth wave. There will just always be waves of suffering and death. We're in a dark winter. On Thursday, 101 patients with COVID required intensive care, well below the more than 400 patients during spring 2021. And you might recall, spring of 2021 was when people everywhere began to get vaccinated, and then all of a sudden, Delta came out. In total, nearly 16,000 people have died of COVID in Sweden since the pandemic started. 16,000. That's, that's all, huh? So Sweden is a country of 10 million people. So that's about 3% the size of America. So if that rate held and Sweden was the size of America in population, all else being the same, you would expect them to have around 530,000 deaths. But America, we're told, has 850,000 deaths. So America's Health outcomes vis-a-vis the coronavirus have been substantially worse than Sweden's. Our rate is around 60% higher. And that's strange, isn't it? Because Sweden never locked down and they never put mask or vaccine mandates in place. They didn't keep their kids out of school for two years. I guess they weren't concerned about stealing an election so that the American people could no longer choose who would represent them in the White House. But none of our public health community is concerned with that. They're not embarrassed about their poor outcomes. They actually believe our outcomes would have been better if only we had done more of what they said we should do. The problem wasn't that we did all of that terrible, stupid, and immoral stuff and ended up with far worse outcomes than countries that didn't do anything. The problem is that we didn't do enough stupid and immoral stuff. So Sweden has determined that for young kids, not even the youngest kids, not toddlers and infants and newborn babies, 
but young kids, elementary school age, they should not be getting vaccinated because children are not at risk and the vaccines present a greater risk than the illness, just as all of the data in the world says, just as common sense says, but not here. And the original data that was put forth, it looked like the dose and the regimen for the children who were six months to 24 months worked well. But it turned out that the other dose, namely the other group from 24 months to four years, did not yet reach the level of non-inferiority. So the studies are continued. It looks like it will be a three-dose regimen. So Fauci is preparing to inject small children with three doses of these quote-unquote vaccines, the ones that Sweden finds unnecessary and not safe enough for the benefit provided. Anthony Fauci wants to give your child three of them. And he doesn't tell you what the data are. He just says the original data put forth looked like the original dose and the regimen for six to 24 month old children looks good. Well, that should make all of you parents out there feel very, very confident. The data put forth, according to Anthony Fauci, about the dose and the regimen, well, it looks good. And that is all you need to know. Now, hand him your children or Barry Weiss and her friends are going to claim that you voted for Donald Trump and then kick you out of their tea party. And let's continue with the very safe and very effective, very, very vaccines. This is uh, from Aaron Siri's Substack. Aaron Siri is an attorney who has been pursuing vaccine related issues. His Substack is great. I've read a bunch of pieces from his Substack on the podcast before. Here is another very important one. FDA asks the court to delay first 55,000 page production until May. And Pfizer moves to intervene in the lawsuit. As explained in prior posts, in a lawsuit seeking all of the documents the FDA relied upon to license Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, a federal judge shot down the FDA's requested rate of 500 pages per month and instead ordered the FDA to produce at the rate of 55,000 pages per month, starting on March 1st. Since the government has trillions of dollars of our money, it is putting it to good use by fighting to assure that the public has the least amount of transparency possible. To that end, it is now asked the court to make the public wait until May for it to start producing 55,000 pages per month and even then claims it may not be able to meet this rate. The FDA's excuse as explained in the brief opposing the FDA's request, the FDA's defense effectively amounts to claiming that the 11 document reviewers it has already assigned and the 17 additional reviewers being onboarded are only capable of reading at the speed of preschoolers. Meanwhile, as the FDA tries to obtain months of delay, guess who just showed up in the lawsuit? Yep, Pfizer. And it is represented by a global chair and team from a law firm with thousands of lawyers. Pfizer's legal bill will likely be multiple times what it would cost the FDA to simply hire a private document review company to review, redact, and produce the documents at issue within weeks, if not days. 
Pfizer is coming in as a third party, but Pfizer assures the court it is here to help expedite production of the documents. Sure it is. Where was Pfizer before the court ordered the 55,000 pages per month? Right. Doing what it normally does, letting the government work on its behalf, like the way the government mandates, promotes and defends Pfizer's product. But the government did not please Pfizer this time. And so here it comes, likely looking for a second bite at the apple. Of course, the FDA consented to Pfizer appearing. You can read the response my firm filed to Pfizer's motion, as well as all of the other relevant recent filings in the link provided below. Let me end by noting that all of this insanity is simply in response to an attempt to obtain some basic transparency. This should again bring into sharp focus why the government should never coerce or mandate anyone to get an unwanted medical product or procedure. Just look at this circus. The government mandates Pfizer's product, gives it immunity for any safety or efficacy issues, promotes its product using taxpayer money, gives Pfizer over $17 billion, and then uses taxpayers' money to fight to avoid providing even the most basic level of transparency to the public. And then Siri shares the introduction to the brief in response, and I will share that with you. It is understandable that the FDA does not want independent scientists to review the documents it relied upon to license Pfizer's vaccine, given that it is not as effective as the FDA originally claimed, does not prevent transmission, does not prevent against certain emerging variants, can cause serious heart inflammation in younger individuals, and has numerous other undisputed safety issues. However, the FDA's potential embarrassment over its decision to license this product must take a backseat to the transparency demanded by FOIA and the urgent need and interests of the American people to review that licensure data. The court already recognized this unprecedented urgent need in its January 6th order directing the FDA to produce 55,000 pages per month. The FDA now insists it must delay its first 55,000 page production until May 1st, 2022 four months after the court entered its order. However, the FDA's own papers seeking this delay make it plain it can produce at a rate of 55,000 pages per month in February and March. The FDA affirms it has already allocated the equivalent of nearly 11 full-time staff to this project and that, quote, a review speed of 50 documents per hour was within the normal range for document review in a complex matter. In private practice and here, the 50 document per hour rate would be faster since there is only a need to review for personal identifying information for most pages. Hence, if the FDA's 11 full-time reviewers work only seven and a half hours per day and review 50 pages, not documents, per hour, the FDA could review over 88,000 pages per month in February and March. That is more than sufficient to produce the 55,000 pages per month currently ordered for these two months. Instead of complying with this court reasoned order, the FDA claims these 11 reviewers can only review a total of 10,000 pages per month. What the FDA does not say and what basic math shows is that a rate of 10,000 pages a month for 11 full-time reviewers amounts to only five pages per hour. This rate is made even more absurd because most of the pages the FDA will be reviewing during this period are repetitive data files that only require second level review to redact minimal amounts of personal identifying information that Pfizer may have left in the documents. FDA's reality defying claim and contemptuous approach to its production obligations should not be countenanced. 
It is also apparent that the instant demand is just the start of a campaign to delay the production ordered by the court. In this first salvo, the FDA is not really asking the court. It is instead expressly telling the court it does not intend to produce more than 10,000 pages per month for February and March. Despite claiming it is making unprecedented efforts, the FDA repeatedly tells the court it is not possible to guarantee that FDA will be able to fully comply with the 55,000 page production rate thereafter. Americans must follow the law and the FDA, a multi-billion dollar agency, should similarly be given no safe harbor from complying with the orders of this court. The FDA should also be held to what it attests. The FDA, with over 18,000 employees and an over $3 billion discretionary budget, repeatedly assures the court that it is taking steps to, quote, marshal every possible resource available to it, end quote, and, quote, acting with maximal urgency to assemble every possible resource available to it and, quote, putting every available resource at its disposal into its efforts to achieve compliance, end quote. The FDA also attested over the coming weeks it will have 28.5 full-time people reviewing the documents, working seven and a half hours a day for 20 business days per month, 28.5 people reviewing 50 pages per hour can review a total of approximately 213,750 pages per month. Putting aside that most of this production can be reviewed far faster than the rate of 50 pages per hour, plaintiff asks that the FDA be held to its representations and be directed to produce at the rate of 180,000 pages per month starting in April. The court is, other than Congress, the only check on the FDA. In a free country, transparency is paramount, and the FDA has chosen to thwart transparency and the requirements of FOIA by anemically understaffing the office it maintains to respond to FOIA requests. It is akin to the boy that kills his parents and asks for sympathy for being an orphan. Decrying that this court is now making it comply with the law by actually producing documents in a timely manner is ridiculous. It is also incredible for the FDA to claim that compliance here would harm its health policy objectives. Even if the FDA really does need to spend four to five million dollars, which, as shown below, is an absurd overestimate, that is an inconsequential amount of its overall three point four one billion dollar discretionary budget. Moreover, the issues with the Pfizer vaccine, including waning immunity, variants evading immunity, the failure to prevent transmission, myocarditis and pericarditis, show that the FDA's priority should be to address this product before rushing off to engage in other activities. For the reasons, as explained below, the court should refuse to reduce the rate of production in February and March and should increase the rate of production for April and thereafter to 180,000 pages per month, consistent with the FDA employing 28.5 full-time reviewers in the coming weeks to conduct the review and the fact that most of the pages only need to be reviewed for personal identifying information. Aaron Siri is doing heroic work here, and it should not be lost on anyone what this sort of thing from the FDA and from Pfizer means. Why don't they want those documents out there? We all know the reasons. All right. If you are still in conversation with any communists or redeemable communists, this is the sort of thing that you show them and say, hey, why don't you tell me what this means? Hey, if your vaccine is so safe and so effective that it should be mandated for five-year-olds, why can't we get 
the documents from Pfizer and the FDA. Why are they trying to hide their documents? Riddle me that. None of them will be able to answer that question. And we all know that because we have tried this strategy before. Now, right now, the last two nights, Brett Baer on Fox News, who's the host of their very serious evening news show, Brett Baer's a clown. He is finally reviewing the timeline of the coronavirus and the origins of the coronavirus. And he's discussing the emails that were foiled from Anthony Fauci, heavily redacted, I might add, in that email drop. This was August or September, I believe. But he's finally going over those emails that state very clearly that Anthony Fauci knew and had plenty of expert testimony to the fact that the virus had emerged from a lab that he helped fund through EcoHealth Alliance. Obviously, Anthony Fauci doesn't need to be told that by other people because he already knew. But he nonetheless was told by other people. And the way he responded after being told by other people was to extend them money or pressure to remain silent about their lab origin theories, to instead support his story about how the virus emerged from nature and came out of the Wuhan wet market. And he also tried to get pieces planted throughout the mainstream media and the scientific literature that would speak to a natural origin. He knew it was a lie the entire time. Now Fox is beginning to talk about this. Fox is beginning to show the child brains in their audience who like things just a little right of center instead of a little left of center that Anthony Fauci may not be the hero that they have painted him to be for the last two years. Whoops, I guess. I don't know how Brett Baer actually goes out on the air and does his job each night when he is such an unprincipled and pathetic liar, but better late than never, I suppose. Regardless, the coronavirus narrative is collapsing completely. Not that they're planning to let go of it. In fact, they're desperately clinging on. And here is an example of how desperately they have been clinging on to this narrative for quite a long time. This is from the Federalist today, Sam Neves. Senator Elizabeth Warren sued for asking Amazon to suppress COVID book in search results. Chelsea Green Publishing is suing Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren for allegedly abusing her political authority to push Amazon to censor their book titled The Truth About COVID-19. The publisher alleges serious First Amendment violations. On September 7th, 2021, Warren sent an official letter to Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, urging him to suppress the bestseller written by Joseph Mercola and Ronnie Cummins in Amazon's search results for, quote, perpetuating dangerous conspiracies about COVID-19 and false and misleading information about vaccines, end quote. Chelsea Green responded by filing a lawsuit accusing Warren of violating the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution by seeking to stop booksellers from selling and or promoting their book. The lawsuit cites the Supreme Court case Bantam Books versus Sullivan, which held that government officials violated the First Amendment by, quote, sending letters to booksellers warning the sale of certain books was potentially unlawful, end quote. 
The ruling established that even though private companies have the right to censor speech within their platforms, they can't do it on behalf of a government agent. It is unconstitutional for state officials to pressure a private company to suppress objectionable speech. And this is going to be a really key lawsuit. I'm really interested in following this along because that is the same thing that's happening with the social media companies. Section 230 is irrelevant in this context. And this is something I've talked about for a long time. The state is not allowed to act with these private companies to suppress speech ever. It is a clear violation of the First Amendment. And yes, I know that the the very elite elites and the normies who listen to them will say they think it's like some hard slam or that they're pointing out your hypocrisy by being like, well, what happened to like private companies in a capitalist system, man? And the truth is that that would be a good point if they were acting as private companies. Instead, they are acting provably, provably, on behalf of government actors, which makes them in that action a state actor, which makes it a clear violation of the First Amendment. And Trump's class action lawsuits against big tech go into this. Other people have mentioned it as well. And I've been talking about it for definitely nearly a year since I saw my own face in FOIA documents that Judicial Watch published about the California Secretary of State's office attempting to censor me. I don't remember, honestly, if I was aware of or paying attention to the role of the state in this censorship. Back to the Federalist article. According to Warren's letter, a search on Amazon's website using the keywords COVID-19 and vaccine would list the book as the first result. Warren concluded the letter by calling Amazon to modify its algorithms, quote, so that they no longer do so. She was upset that the best-selling book was at the top of the search results. Chelsea Green Publishing released a statement explaining their allegations against Warren. The term vaccine misinformation, as Warren uses it, refers to any speech challenging the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccines, even when that speech consists of factually accurate information or reasonable and protected opinion, the statement said. Plaintiffs allege Warren's letter contained blatant falsehoods and unsubstantiated accusations about the book and that Warren's claims, even if correct, would not alter the book's constitutional protectedness. So that's two levels of their argument, right? The first is that she can't even show that they have said false things. She is accusing them of lying, of spreading disinformation, of these being conspiracy theories, but she can't prove any of that because the things that they are saying are clear and available data. The second part is that even if Warren was absolutely right about it being misinformation and conspiracy theory, whatever speech is in that book is still protected by the First Amendment, which makes it illegal and unconstitutional for a member of the government to exert pressure over a private business to censor a third party. Author Joseph Mercola accused Warren of violating his First Amendment rights, noting that protecting free speech is, quote, central to our democracy. 
I believe successful treatments for COVID-19 have been suppressed, and there are real conspiracies that have been revealed that are essential to public well-being, said Mercola. And of course, he's exactly right. Margot Baldwin, president of the publisher, pointed out that, historically speaking, suppressing books indicates dangerous government trends. The government trying to ban books is a very dangerous slippery slope to totalitarianism and cannot be allowed, said Baldwin. We've been here before in history and we know where it leads. Tyranny. First, burning books, then banning books, then disappearing books from search results. It's all the same thing. As a result of Warren's letter, Barnes and Noble, the largest bookseller chain in America, announced it would no longer sell the ebook of the truth about COVID-19 on its digital platforms, a decision which was reversed a few days later. And just remember who these companies are, honestly, because there will come a point where the narrative has flipped entirely. Like once we are in the early stages of the American Renaissance, that is, by the way, just ahead, these are the sort of problems that need to be handled. These companies where the law allows should be sued into oblivion for doing these sorts of things. All right. We need to understand what the movement is that they are aiding and abetting. Many observations about COVID-19 that were previously considered conspiracy theories by Democrat politicians have since turned out to be correct. For a few examples, after two years of lies, the CDC finally admitted that its COVID death and hospitalization numbers were being inflated. 75% of COVID victims had at least four comorbidities. And sorry, Federalist, that was wrong the entire time. Yes, they have said it again, but they have put that information out for a year and a half or more, it is so frustrating to see outlets like the Federalist just accept part of the narrative. This is not new information, but they continue. The vaccine doesn't prevent transmission and cloth masks were always political theater. And they could probably keep the list of former conspiracy theories that are now just true running for days on end. This is not the first time Democrat politicians have colluded with powerful private corporations to shut down speech that poses an inconvenience. Recently, President Joe Biden urged social media companies to, quote, deal with the misinformation and disinformation, end quote, on their platforms. Last year, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki revealed the White House was regularly working with Facebook to, quote, flag problematic posts that spread disinformation, end quote. That is an admission of the violation of the First Amendment by the fake administration. They're just straight up admitting it. They do not care. They think it's good because they exist within their elitist social media bubble. And everybody in that bubble is so scared of the fact that any day now, they already feel it coming. They already know it's happening. But they know that they will be exposed for the liars and the frauds that they are, and they are trying to push that date further and further away. And the only way they can do that is by making sure that none of the no-no words and none of the no-no people can ever penetrate their little bubble. Well, sorry, commies, you lost. Nathan J. Arnold, an attorney for the plaintiffs, said he doesn't believe there is any misinformation in the book, but even if there was, it would be irrelevant since its speech is protected by the First Amendment. 
I know that the political landscape that we're all operating in is terribly partisan, but we don't want unpopular opinions being suppressed by whoever's in power, said Arnold. It really transcends party politics. And a quick look at the original report on this lawsuit from the Dartmouth.com. Lawyers representing Warren have moved for a preliminary injunction arguing that sovereign immunity bars the plaintiff's claims that the plaintiff's lack standing and that the speech and debate clause of the Constitution protect her letter. Counsel for the plaintiffs has replied requesting oral arguments in the suit currently awaits judgment, according to Arnold. And I cannot seem to find exactly what the suit is seeking, but suing a sitting United States senator for violating the First Amendment in conjunction with a private company and having a solid base in former Supreme Court precedent is a pretty great development. And I really want to see where this goes. And I'm no lawyer, but I believe that sovereign immunity is the claim that they have not filed their suit in the proper court. And that is related in some way to their claim of standing. But I want to spend a second on the speech and debate clause because this is the defense that congressmen and senators use to be able to lie anywhere they want. Like when Adam Schiff goes out on television and pretends that there is classified information that he has been privy to within the House Intel Committee that doesn't actually exist, which is what he did throughout the Russian collusion hoax and the Ukraine impeachment hoax and everything else Adam Schiff does. Essentially, he just makes up intelligence, goes out on television and talks about it, knowing that a no one can contest his claims without talking about classified information. And B, he is protected by the speech and debate clause. That is what he claims. And here is the speech and debate clause. This is from the Heritage Foundation's website. This is Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1. For any speech or debate in either house, senators and representatives shall not be questioned in any other place. And place is capitalized. The right of legislatures to speak their minds with impunity while engaged in legislative work was acknowledged by the British Bill of Rights in 1689, written into the Articles of Confederation and after the Revolution, guaranteed by state constitutions as well as by the Speech and Debate Clause. James Wilson, one of the principal architects of the Constitution, explained in his lecture on law in 1791 the purpose of the clause. In order to enable and encourage a representative of the public to discharge his public trust with firmness and success, it is indispensably necessary that he should enjoy the fullest liberty of speech and that he should be protected from the resentment of every one, however powerful, to whom the exercise of that liberty may occasion offense. In his commentaries on the Constitution of the United States in 1833, Justice Joseph Story wrote that in England, the privilege was, quote, strictly confined to things done in the course of parliamentary proceedings and did not cover things done beyond the place and limits of duty, end quote. 
To illustrate this limitation, he noted that although a libelous speech delivered in the House of Commons was privileged, if a member republished that speech elsewhere, the libeled party was free to bring him to court. He then added that the same principles seem applicable to the privilege of debate and speech in Congress. Although the only early case to deal with the privilege was concerned with a virtually identical provision of a state constitution rather than the speech and debate clause itself, the Massachusetts Supreme Court agreed that the privilege was limited to actions taken by a legislator, quote, in the exercise of the functions of his office. Coffin versus Coffin, 1808. The view of this scope of the privilege is consistent with that of another delegate to the Constitutional Convention, Charles Pinckney, who later observed in remarks in the U.S. Senate that the framers, quote, knew that in free countries, very few privileges were necessary for the undisturbed exercise of legislative duties. They therefore not only intended, but did confine their privileges within the narrow limits mentioned in the Constitution. Over the past 50 years, the Supreme Court has reaffirmed that the purpose of the clause is to protect the independence of Congress when exercising the legislative responsibilities assigned to it by the Constitution. Eastland versus United States Servicemen's Fund, 1975, and it will interpret the clause broadly to that effect. United States versus Johnson, 1666. The court also has consistently limited its application to activities that, quote, are clearly part of the legislative process. United States versus Brewster, 1972. An activity is deemed to be within the legislative sphere only if it is, quote, an integral part of the deliberative and communicative processes by which members participate in committee and house proceedings with respect to the consideration and passage or rejection of proposed legislation or with respect to other matters which the Constitution places within the jurisdiction of either house. End quote from Gravel versus United States 1972. And this discussion goes on and on. But Elizabeth Warren's lawyers, to hold up that part of their claim that the speech and debate clause protects her, have to then argue that her letter to Amazon was somehow in support of or related to her legislative duties as a senator. How is she going to prove that? She wrote a letter asking a private company to target and take down one book. Because she said falsely that it contained lies and conspiracy theories. So basically her defenses are wrong court, wrong people suing. And I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want because I'm a senator. That is the claim right up to and including violating the First Amendment in conjunction with one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful corporations. You know what censorship by the government in conjunction with a corporation for the benefit of the drug companies, other corporations is called? Well, that's called fascism because fascism is the union of the state and corporate interests. And now we go around those things. We call it state capitalism and we call it corporatism and we call it stakeholder capitalism and we call it, as Barack Obama always did, a seat at the table. But it's none of those things. It is just straight up old fashioned capitalism. 
And what is Elizabeth Warren's guiding political philosophy? Well, she will tell us more or less that it's democratic socialism. Now, democratic socialism doesn't exist. It's just communism. Socialism is just communism light. If you are a socialist, you are also a communist. And if you want to test that theory, ask a socialist where their limiting principles are, and you will find out they don't have any. They want more communism all the time. They want more state control all the time until the state controls everything. Because they believe that they can create a utopia on earth so long as everyone simply listens to them. There is no limit to that principle because there is no utopia on earth. It doesn't matter how good things get. They will never be satisfied. They want more and more and more. And that leads to communism. So how is it that someone is both a communist and a fascist? We were all raised being told, being told to believe that Nazism and fascism, well, those are right-wing ideologies. Socialism and communism, yes, they're on the left, but nobody believes in communism, and socialism is actually great. The thing is, no one has just really tried it well enough yet. Now, Nazis are the nationalist socialist party. Literally, that's what they are, but not that kind of socialism. This is, this is right-wing socialism. Don't you understand? And fascism, well, fascism, we know that that's right wing because it benefits business and business is automatically right wing. So fascism and Nazism, those are right wing and communism and socialism are left. And really, they've got nothing in common. Well, you know what? It turns out that Elizabeth Warren, the communist, is very happy to also take on the role of fascist and do so in league with the biggest corporations in the world. What kind of socialist is she? Now, finally, I want to go through a piece by the great Paul Sperry in Real Clear Investigations. This is from today. The headline is, What Did Clinton Know and When Did She Know It? The Russiagate Evidence Builds. As indictments and new court filings indicate that special counsel John Durham is investigating Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign for feeding false reports to the FBI to incriminate Donald Trump and his advisors as Kremlin agents, Clinton's role in the burgeoning scandal remains elusive. What did she know and when did she know it? Top officials involved in her campaign have repeatedly claimed, some under oath, that they and the candidate were unaware of the foundation of their disinformation campaign. The 35-page collection of now-debunked claims of Trump-Russia collusion known as the Steele dossier. Even though her campaign helped pay for the dossier, they claim she only read it after BuzzFeed News published it in 2017. But court documents, behind-the-scenes video footage, and recently surfaced evidence reveal that Clinton and her top campaign advisors were much more involved in the more than $1 million operation to dredge up dirt on Trump and Russia than they have let on. The evidence suggests that the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory sprang from a multi-pronged effort within the Clinton campaign, which manufactured many of the false claims, then fed them to friendly media and law enforcement officials. Clinton herself was at the center of these efforts, using her personal Twitter account and presidential debates to echo the false claims of Steele and others that Trump was in cahoots with the Russians. 
Although Clinton has not been pressed by major media on her role in Russiagate, a short scene in the 2020 documentary Hillary suggests she was aware of the effort. It shows Clinton speaking to her running mate, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine and his wife, Anne, in hushed tones about Trump and Russia in a back room before a campaign event in early October 2016. Clinton expressed concerns over Trump's weird connections to Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin. She informed Kane that she and her aides were scratching hard, quote, scratching hard to expose them, a project Kane seemed to be hearing about for the first time. I don't say this lightly, Clinton whispered, pausing to look over her shoulder, but Trump's agenda is other people's agenda. Yeah, the American people, Hillary. Try it sometime. We're scratching hard trying to figure it out, she continued. He is the vehicle, the vessel for all these other people. The two then discussed, quote, all these weird connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. Kane brought up former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and Clinton expressed suspicion about Trump's then national security advisor, retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who is, quote, a paid tool for Russian television, added Clinton. This is what scares me, the way Putin has taken over the political apparatus or is trying to. At that point, a media handler interrupted them over some staging issues, and they stopped discussing Trump and Russia. Both Manafort and Flynn have been cited in dossier reports submitted to the Clinton campaign before the two Democratic nominees had their October 2016 conversation. The dossier falsely accused Manafort, Flynn, and other Trump advisors of participating in a Kremlin conspiracy to steal the election for Trump. Dossier author Christopher Steele himself has suggested Clinton was briefed on his reports. On July 5th, 2016, the same day the FBI publicly exonerated Clinton in her email scandal, Steele handed off the first installments of the dossier to an FBI agent overseas who had handled him previously as an informant. In their London meeting, Steele noted that Clinton was aware of his reporting, according to contemporaneous notes Steele took of their conversation. The notes reflect that Steele told his FBI handler, Michael Gaeta, that Steele was aware that Democratic Party associates were paying for his research. The ultimate client was the leadership of the Clinton presidential campaign, and the candidate was aware of Steele's reporting. Justice Department watchdog Michael Horowitz wrote in his 2019 report examining the FBI's use of the dossier to justify spying on Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. Later that month, during the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, the CIA picked up Russian chatter about a Clinton foreign policy advisor who is trying to develop allegations to vilify Trump. The Intercept said Clinton herself had approved a plan to stir up a scandal against Trump by tying him to Putin. According to handwritten notes, then CIA chief John Brennan warned President Obama that Moscow had intercepted information about the, quote, alleged approval by Hillary Clinton on July 26, 2016, of a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump. And this is something that I hope people always keep in mind, okay? John Brennan, the CIA chief, former CIA chief, who is now a contributor to MSNBC, and I guess maybe either formerly or still a contributor to CNN as well, warned President Barack Obama that Hillary Clinton was doing this. 
Barack Obama knew the entire time throughout the rest of the campaign, while Hillary Clinton and her campaign and Democrat operatives and media all repeated these lies on television to try to take down Donald Trump. The president of the United States, Barack Obama, was aware that all of this was false and he said and did nothing because his goals were being served by this operation. At the convention, Clinton foreign policy advisor Jake Sullivan, who is, by the way, right now, the current national security advisor for the fake president, Joe Biden, drove a golf cart from one TV network news tent in the parking lot to another, pitching producers, anchors, correspondents, and even some NBC network executives, a story that Trump and his advisors were in bed with Putin and possibly conspiring with Russian intelligence to steal the election. He also visited CNN and MSNBC, as well as Fox News, to spin the Clinton campaign's unfounded theories. Sullivan even sat down with CNN honcho Jeff Zucker to outline the opposition research they had gathered on Trump and Russia. Sullivan's title was misleading. He was far more than a foreign policy advisor to Clinton. His portfolio included campaign strategy. Hillary told Sullivan she wanted him to take over her campaign. Journalists Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen reported in their 2017 bestseller, Shattered, Inside Hillary's Doomed Campaign. You are going to be my traffic cop and my rabbi, she told Sullivan, adding that he would be her de facto chief strategist. Sullivan was included in, quote, every aspect of her campaign strategy, end quote. They wrote because, quote, no one on the official campaign staff understood Hillary's thought process as well as Sullivan. Now serving in the White House as President Biden's national security advisor, Sullivan has denied under oath knowing details about the dossier project. Sullivan spread the anti-Trump rumors behind the scenes while Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook went in front of cameras to echo essentially what Steele, a former British intelligence officer, had reported back to the campaign. Experts are telling us that Russian state actors broke into the DNC, stole these emails, and other experts are now saying the Russians are releasing these emails for the purpose of actually helping Donald Trump, Mook told CNN's Jake Tapper at the convention. He made the same allegations on ABC News' This Week, anchored by George Stephanopoulos, who served as White House communications director during Bill Clinton's presidency. You got that? Once again, the Russians broke into the DNC and stole Hillary's emails and gave them to WikiLeaks. It definitely wasn't Seth Rich who gave over the DNC's emails to WikiLeaks, and that is not why he was killed right after. That, my friends, was a botched robbery by two members of MS-13 who just happened also not to rob him. Hillary Clinton campaign communications director Jennifer Palmieri has acknowledged that they were all bent on casting a cloud of suspicion over Trump and seeding doubt about his loyalties by suggesting, quote, the possibility of collusion between Trump's allies and Russian intelligence. We were on a mission to get the press to focus on the prospect that Russia had not only hacked and stolen emails from the Democrat National Committee, but that it had done so to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton, Palmieri stated in a 2017 Washington Post column. We wanted to raise the alarm. 
It's not known if their media blitz was coordinated with Glenn Simpson, the Clinton campaign's opposition research contractor who hired Steele for $168,000. That's Fusion GPS, by the way. But Simpson also attended the convention in Philadelphia. At the same time, Clinton's top people were making the TV media rounds. Simpson and his Fusion GPS co-founder, Peter Fritsch, were meeting with the New York Times and other major print media outlets to pitch Russia collusion stories, focusing primarily on Manafort. Bad publicity from the planted stories would later pressure Trump to dump Manafort as his campaign manager. That same week, Simpson worked with ABC News correspondent Brian Ross on a since-debunked story framing Trump supporter Sergei Milian as a Russian spy. Simpson also told Ross that Trump was involved in shady business deals in Moscow. Simpson set up Ross's interview with Milian through ABC producer Matthew Mosk, an old Simpson friend. Then in September 2016, ABC's Good Morning America, which is co-hosted by Stephanopoulos, aired parts of the Milian report. Later that day, Hillary Clinton tweeted out a campaign video incorporating heavily edited quotes from Milian and suggesting they were more evidence Trump was, quote, an unwitting agent of the Russian Federation, end quote. Above the video she posted on September 22nd, Clinton personally tweeted, the man who could be your next president may be deeply indebted to another country. Do you trust him to run ours? Maybe he may be deeply indebted to another country. (laughs) says Hillary Clinton. In effect, Clinton broadcast to her millions of followers a story her campaign had helped manufacture through a paid contractor. Durham's ongoing investigation has found that core parts of the dossier were fabricated and falsely attributed to Milian as their source, including the foundational claim of a, quote, well-developed conspiracy of cooperation, end quote, between Russia and Trump. Durham reported that Steele's main collector of information, one-time Brookings Institution analyst Igor Danchenko, never even spoke with Milian, as he had claimed, but simply made up the source of the most explosive information in the dossier. Durham recently indicted Danchenko for lying to the FBI about Milian. The day after Clinton's false tweet about Milian and Trump, Her campaign released a statement by senior national spokesman Glenn Kaplan touting a new bombshell report by Yahoo News that revealed the FBI was investigating Trump's foreign policy advisor for suspected links to the Kremlin. It's chilling to learn that U.S. intelligence officials are conducting a probe into suspected meetings between Trump's foreign policy advisor, Carter Page, and members of Putin's inner circle while in Moscow, according to the statement, which attached the September 23rd, 2016 Yahoo article in full and noted the report came on the heels of ABC's story about Millions. Just one day after we learned about Trump's hundreds of millions of dollars in undisclosed Russian business interests, Kaplan's statement continued, this report suggests Page met with a sanctioned top Russian official to discuss the possibility of ending U.S. sanctions against Russia under a Trump presidency, an action that could directly enrich both Trump and Page while undermining American interests. We've never seen anything like this in American politics, the Clinton campaign statement added with alarm. Every day seems to cast new doubts on what's truly driving Donald Trump's decision making. But the Yahoo story about Page's nefarious Kremlin meetings was apocryphal. Its main source was Steele, whose identity was hidden in the story. Yahoo reporter Michael Isakoff had interviewed Steele in a room at a Washington Inn booked by Simpson. 
The FBI nonetheless cited the article to support its applications to a secret federal court for authority to spy on Page, claiming it collaborated the dossier's allegations, even though they were one and the same. Here again, Clinton's team hyped as a bombshell. Trump-Russia revelation, a media report that it helped craft from opposition research it commissioned and from FBI interest it generated. All of this was hidden from voters. It was also in September that then Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman planted at FBI headquarters the manufactured allegation that Trump had set up a, quote, secret hotline to Putin through Russia-based Alpha Bank. Steele had filed a campaign report about the bank's ties to Putin around the same time. Durham last year indicted Sussman for lying to the FBI, detailing how the lawyer and Simpson had collaborated with a team of anti-Trump pro-Clinton computer researchers to draft a technical report for the FBI and media allegedly connecting Trump to Alpha Bank through email servers. Simpson, in turn, worked with Slate reporter Franklin Four to craft a story propagating the allegation, even reviewing his piece in advance of publication. Four's story broke on October 31st, 2016. That same day, Sullivan hyped the story on Twitter, claiming in a written campaign statement that Trump and the Russians were operating a secret hotline through Alpha Bank and speculating federal authorities would be investigating, quote, this direct connection between Trump and Russia. He portrayed the discovery as the work of independent experts, computer scientists, without disclosing their connections to the campaign. This could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow, Sullivan proclaimed. And you know what? He was actually right about that. This was not any link between Donald Trump and Moscow whatsoever, but it is also the best one, the most direct one, because there actually is no other link at all. And the entire Russian collusion story was a complete and total invention of and by the Clinton campaign. October surprise that wasn't. Clinton teed up that statement in an October 31st tweet of her own, which quickly went viral. She warned voters, computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russia-based bank. Also that day, Clinton tweeted, it's time for Trump to answer serious questions about his ties to Russia while attaching a meme that read, Donald Trump has a secret server. It was set up to communicate privately with a Putin-tied Russian bank called Alpha Bank. And that, of course, is not remotely true. Hillary Clinton had a secret server. At the same time that Simpson was working with Slate, he leaked to a friend at the New York Times that the FBI had evidence of the Trump alpha link, providing the Times and other friendly media outlets a serious news hook to publish the unfounded rumors on the eve of the November election. The alpha smear was meant as an October surprise that would rock the Trump campaign and take media focus off the probe of Clinton's emails, which then FBI director James Comey had been pressured by a New York agent to revive in the final week of the campaign. Clinton's team had even prepared a video promoting the Trump alpha bank server connection and was poised to make an all out push through social media, according to Isakoff and David Korn in their book, Russian Roulette. But that plan was canned, they wrote because the October 31st Times story noted that the FBI had not been able to corroborate the claims of a cyber link. The skepticism cooled the media firestorm the campaign had hoped for. We had been waiting for the Alpha Bank story to come out, Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta told Isakoff and Korn. 
then boom, it gets smacked down by reality, obviously. In congressional testimony, Podesta has largely claimed ignorance about the campaign's opposition research efforts. In Durham's indictment of Sussman for lying to the FBI about his work for the Clinton campaign while feeding them the Alpha Bank story, prosecutors revealed that Sussman's partner, Mark Elias, kept Clinton campaign bigwigs in the loop about the project to manufacture a Trump-Russian bank conspiracy, which the FBI months later completely debunked. Emails obtained by Durham's investigators show the lawyer had briefed top Clinton campaign officials, Sullivan, Palmieri, and Mook about the Alpha smear in September 2016. Elias kept Clinton campaign members informed, the indictment said. Sullivan, who now serves as President Biden's national security advisor, maintained in December 2017 congressional testimony, he didn't even know that the politically prominent Elias worked for Perkins Coie, a well-known Democratic law firm representing the Clinton campaign. Major media stories from 2016, however, routinely identified Elias as general counsel for the Clinton campaign and a partner at Perkins Coie. To be honest with you, Mark wears a tremendous number of hats, so I wasn't sure who he was representing, Sullivan testified. I sort of thought he was, you know, just talking to us as, you know, a fellow traveler in this, in this campaign effort. Yeah, you don't sound like you're lying at all, Jake Sullivan. Veteran FBI investigators doubt Sullivan or his boss were in the dark about the campaign-funded work of Elias, Sussman, Simpson, or Steele, and other campaign operations designed to make Trump look compromised by a foreign adversary. Durham is telling us that this Alpha Bank hoax and probably related matters were Clinton campaign ops at the very highest level, former FBI counterintelligence agent and lawyer Mark Walk noted. How credible is it to suppose that Hillary herself wasn't in the know? And of course, it's not credible at all. Hillary Clinton absolutely knew. And we know for a fact that John Brennan and James Comey knew. And we know for a fact that James Clapper knew and Joe Biden knew and Barack Obama knew. Durham's investigators have been questioning Elias under subpoena. A new court filing in the Sussman case reveals that Elias has given testimony before a criminal grand jury impaneled by Durham in Washington, D.C., Grand jury testimony is sealed and it's not known what Elias told prosecutors. But in 2017, he testified in a closed door session of Congress that Mook was his campaign contact for opposition research projects, including the dossier. I consulted with Robbie Mook, who was campaign manager, he said, noting that Mook handled budget matters and signed off on opposition research expenses billed by Perkins Coie, which totaled more than $1.2 million. While Mook has not been questioned under oath on the Hill, he told CNN, I didn't know that we were paying the contractor that created that document. What I've known about the dossier is what I've read in the press, he claimed. Mook said he doesn't recall seeing the dossier memos during the campaign. I just can't attribute to what piece of information, you know, came to us at one time or where it came from, frankly. You know, as campaign manager, there's a lot going on. Mook added that he wasn't sure who was gathering the information for the dossier. I don't know the answer to that. I wish we paid more attention to it on the campaign. And so then which is it? Are you incompetent and terrible at your job or are you lying? The biggest claim that they made throughout the campaign, essentially beyond that Trump was racist and that his supporters were racist and that he hated women and his supporters hated women and blah, 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 blah. Their biggest thing was the Trump-Russia collusion thing. 
They get this dossier. That's the basis for everything, including the basis for the FBI's FISA warrants to spy on Trump's campaign. And they didn't bother finding out whether or not the information was true or even where it came from. In his testimony, Elias said he met with Simpson and other Fusion GPS researchers at least 20 times and Steele at least once during the campaign. He said he would receive written reports from them and direct them to find certain information. He, in turn, would travel each week to Clinton campaign headquarters in Brooklyn, New York, to report what he had learned about Trump and Russia. However, Elias insisted he left his interlocutors in the dark about the sources of that information for which the campaign was paying him in excess of one million dollars. He also insisted he didn't tell his campaign contacts about meetings with Steele or Simpson, despite billing the campaign for such consultations and never shared the dossier reports or other materials they generated with those Clinton officials. Elias even maintained that he hired Fusion GPS on his own without consulting with Mook or the campaign. I was the gatekeeper, he said, between the research contractors and the campaign. According to Russian roulette, however, Elias shared the findings of Steele's memos with at least Mook. Elias would at times brief Mook on their contents, Isakoff and Korn wrote. Podesta has testified that he too had no idea Steele and Fusion GPS were on the campaign's payroll and didn't read the dossier until BuzzFeed posted it online after the election. Under oath, Podesta denied speaking with Clinton about the dossier even after the election. I don't know that I've ever discussed the dossier with Mrs. Clinton, he said. He also swore Clinton never talked to him about opposition research in general or who the campaign might hire to conduct it. The campaign's in-house opposition research team, led by chief researcher Christina Reynolds, was under the direction of Palmieri, the head of communications who is close to Clinton. That's actually who Clinton did that interview with in the lead up to the 2020 election, where she said that Joe Biden should not concede under any circumstances. Former Bill Clinton political strategist Doug Schoen said it stretches credulity to suggest that top officials in the Clinton camp, including the candidate herself, weren't fully aware of the research their campaign attorney was billing them for. With more than 380 payouts from the Clinton campaign and the DNC being made to Perkins Coie, It is seemingly impossible that the candidate herself would not have direct knowledge of the purpose of those payments or any earmarks being made, especially those for Fusion GPS, Schoen said. Quoting unnamed Clinton surrogates, both the New York Times and CNN have reported that the candidate was unaware of the dossier prior to BuzzFeed publishing it two months after the 2016 election. Former Clinton campaign spokesman Brian Fallon told CNN in a separate interview, she may not have been totally out of the loop, however. She may have known about the dossier and its financing before the election, he said, but the degree of exactly what she knew is beyond my knowledge. A senior congressional investigator who insisted on anonymity said the denials are hard to believe and described them as an effort to insulate Clinton from a major undertaking of her campaign that has proved scandalous, if not criminal. And I think we're going to find out it's criminal. The biggest lie is Hillary didn't know about any of this oppo stuff, even though she tweeted about it, he said. Clinton also appeared to cite dossier disinformation in the presidential debates, casting further doubt on claims she was walled off from such opposition research. In the final debate, for example, Clinton accused Trump of being Putin's puppet and accepting his help in sabotaging her campaign, drawing conclusions similar to the ones made in the dossier. 
She claimed Trump did what the dossier falsely claimed he did, conspiring with the Russian government to hack her campaign and steal emails, though she allegedly never read Steele's reports. You encouraged espionage against our people, Clinton said on October 19th, 2016. With each new indictment and court filing, Clinton inches closer to the center of the special prosecutor's investigation, now in its third year. Durham indicated in a recently filed court document that he is actively investigating the Clinton campaign and seeks to question its top officials. His office declined to say whether it intended to question Clinton herself. Durham's recent indictments of Sussman and subcontractor Danchenko implicate key campaign figures and make clear the that the Clinton campaign's influence on the contents of the dossier was much deeper than previously known. For instance, Durham found that a longtime Clinton advisor and campaign advisor, Charles Dolan, was a key source for the dossier and most likely originated the false P-tape rumor involving Trump and Moscow prostitutes. It seems likely that he acted as an intermediary between the campaign and Steele's primary subsource, Danchenko, with whom he communicated. In 2016, Dolan actively campaigned and participated in calls and events as a volunteer on behalf of Hillary Clinton, according to the Danchenko indictment. In other words, the Clinton campaign not only funded the Russia dirt on Trump, but provided some of the actual sourcing for it. Campaign operatives, in turn, laundered the dirt through the FBI and into the mainstream media to damage Trump. In a related filing in the Danchenko case, Durham noted that his areas of inquiry include investigating, quote, the extent to which the Clinton campaign and or its representatives directed, solicited or controlled the defendant Danchenko's activities surrounding the dossier. He also indicated prosecutors want to find out whether the campaign knew Danchenko and Steele were funneling false information to the FBI and intend to summon multiple former employees of the campaign as trial or grand jury witnesses. In the Sussman case, Durham's agents have already questioned one former employee of the Clinton campaign and subpoenaed Clinton campaign records, according to a new document filed by Durham earlier this week. Sources familiar with his probe say Durham ultimately is investigating the Clinton campaign for, among other things, alleged conspiracy to defraud the FBI, the Justice Department and the Pentagon's research arm, which provided funding and sensitive Internet logs to Clinton operatives who helped fabricate the Alpha Bank hoax conspiracy to defraud the FBI, the Justice Department, and the Pentagon's research arm. Well, that sounds like it might be a big deal. I guess, whoops, Hillary, whoops, John Brennan, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, James Clapper, James Comey, Glenn Simpson, Mark Elias, Michael Sussman, Igor Danchenko, Christopher Steele, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. This is a clear, knowing, willful conspiracy to defraud branches of the government in an attempt to smear an opposition candidate for president of the United States of America. And they didn't even stop once he was elected. They kept this going. They turned it into the Mueller investigation. All of it, every single ounce and bit of it was a complete and total lie and fabrication done intentionally to make sure that Hillary Clinton could successfully steal an election and she still failed. 
Danchenko and the Clinton campaign, including Podesta and other officials, happened to share the same D.C. law firm, Shirtler and Onorato, which gives the appearance that the Clinton campaign and the main source of the dossier have entered into a joint defense. Durham warned the court that the arrangement poses a conflict of interest. Podesta's attorney, Bob Trout, did not respond to requests for comment. Trout also represents other campaign ex-campaign officials who recently retained him in matters before Durham. Clinton's lawyer, David Kendall, who practices at the Washington-based firm Williams and Connolly, did not reply to requests for comment. J.D. Gordon, who held a position roughly equivalent to Sullivan's on the 2016 Trump campaign, said in an interview that he hopes Durham adds Sullivan and other Clinton aides to his criminal investigation, quote, if he hasn't already. He suspects Sullivan was, quote, the Russiagate hoax mastermind, end quote, and hopes that he and other members of Clinton's 2016 team, as well as the candidate herself, are subpoenaed for testimony and document production, just as he and other Trump advisors were targeted by special counsel Robert Mueller, based almost entirely on rumors started by the Clinton machine. He called the Clinton funded smears depraved and nationally destabilizing. And of course, he's exactly right. In addition to outright surveillance via the fraudulent FISA warrant against Carter Page, many of us were hit with federal and congressional subpoenas subjected to grueling Senate and House investigations, special counsel interrogations, and resulting harsh media spotlight, he said. I appeared before the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senate Judiciary Committee, House Intelligence Committee, and produced requested documents to the House Judiciary Committee. Three times I was summoned before the special counsel, the first of which in August 2017 was apparently leaked to the Washington Post. Man, he's got a lot of reasons to be mad. Could you imagine having to go through that because of a lie told by the other side? That is total abuse of our justice system in an attempt to cover up a crime. Gordon is not alone in his desire to see Clinton held to account. Among those Americans aware of the Durham probe, fully 60% think the special counsel should question Clinton about her role in the dossier and other campaign foul play, according to a recent national poll by Technometrica, Institute of Policy and Politics. Broken down by political affiliation, 80% of Republicans, 44% of Democrats, and 74% of independent voters agree that Clinton should be interviewed by investigators. What happened more than five years ago may have renewed relevance. Some Democratic strategists speculate that Clinton is eyeing another run at the White House. As Vice President Kamala Harris's popularity wanes and her shot at becoming the first female president slips, they say Clinton may see an opening. I will never be out of the game of politics, Clinton told ABC's Good Morning America in October. And I know that piece is crazy long. I hope you were happy to bear with me. That is as good a summary of what's going on in the Russiagate hoax and the Durham investigation as you can possibly find. That's like the Cliff Notes version of everything. And Paul Sperry is always great at this stuff. And keep in mind, consider the extent of the criminality that these people are willing to pursue for power and to prevent exposure. You see what the FDA and Pfizer will do to cover up the vaccine data. You see what the media and tech and universities and everyone will do to censor anyone who is speaking in opposition to the central narrative about the crimes committed by these people in covering up the coronavirus origins and the ways that they have lied about 
the coronavirus all along. They're covering up that crime. Crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity. That's what we're talking about here. And we can see the length that they'll go to to cover up the greatest crime against America in its history, which is the theft of the 2020 election. All the censorship, the cover up, all of that that has come from that. And the coronavirus crimes, the election crimes, start making it look like this whole situation pales in comparison. But prior to those two things, this is one of the greatest political crimes in the history of our nation. You can see how vast the conspiracy is. You can see that all of these people knew about it the whole time. And nonetheless, they went out and tried to steal an election anyway. They will do anything for power. You don't need to ask whether or not they will stoop to these levels, whether or not they will commit more crimes and to what extent. You know the extent. You know who these people are. The rest of it should be relatively easy to believe. There is no reason to trust any of these people. And there is no reason to ever trust the media outlets that help them perpetuate these narratives. It is critical to move beyond the central narrative. There is nothing true inside it. Now, before I go, all of the ways to follow my work and to get in touch and to support the podcast are listed in the show notes, the episode notes on your podcast app. I will be back tomorrow, the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. as moderator for tonight's broadcast.
It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!